Hi, I'm Aida. And I'm Haley. And today we have Samuel Visner joining us on the pod. But first, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fly on the Wall Pod. And you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Samuel Visner is the director of the National Cybersecurity Federally Funded Research and Development Center at MITRE. In this role, Visner oversees efforts to bring together experts from industry, government, and academia to talk about cybersecurity solutions that are cost-effective and repeatable. Visner also has experience as the Chief of Signals Intelligence at the National Security Agency and has worked all over the federal government. He currently serves as an adjunct professor of cybersecurity at Georgetown University. Mr. Visner, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. You graduated from Georgetown with a degree in international politics in 1976, at a time when the internet and, by extension, cybersecurity was not really in anybody's vision. Oh. So how did you become one of the leading national experts on cybersecurity? Well, thanks very much for allowing me to participate in this podcast. And uh, I guess what I would have to say to, to get started is that I was always interested in technology. My dad was a nuclear physicist and he worked on the Manhattan Project and then worked in commercial nuclear power. And I was always interested in technology um, and I was the, the captain of my junior high school today, middle school audiovisual team, which meant that we played around with movie projectors and tape recorders. These are things that you're not going to see very much of these days. Um, but I was always interested in politics and I didn't think that I would would in the end become a scientist. Vietnam was an interesting time politically. It made a lot of people politically aware and politically active. I was one of them. But I decided that, that I would continue my interest in politics by going to Georgetown University. And yet I never forgot my interest in technology. So in our house, my father would always make sure that the Sunday New York Times was available. And so was the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And when I went to the library, I read, you know, the stereo magazines. And I read the New Republic and the National Review. And I always sought a way to combine my interest in international relations and politics and foreign policy on the one hand with technology on the other. I had no idea at the time that it would lead to the kind of interest that we have today. Having said that, um, when I joined the government, briefly at the Department of State in, uh, in, in 1976 as I was graduating Georgetown, and then CIA, things were beginning to change. There was a rising interest in technology and there was a kind of vague recognition that somehow the world of technology was going to play a role in the world of politics, but we didn't know how. In 1977, I joined CIA and frankly, as an analyst, I was bored out of my mind. And I stayed that way until somebody said, why don't you become a communications officer? So that sounds interesting. What is it? Well, you learn something about information technology. That was kind of interesting. And the CIA was a place in which you would always be interested in politics and foreign policy, but you'd also now, I uh, would also now have an opportunity to think about technology. And then in the midst of all of this, somebody said, you know, we want to build a new cadre of people involved in signals intelligence. And I said, that sounds great. What is signals intelligence again? And signals <laughs> intelligence, of course, is deriving intelligence from foreign communications and foreign information technology. I had no idea what this was, but it gave me the opportunity to learn something new and to work in an agency that advised policymakers, but advised, in this case, policymakers based on intelligence gleaned 
from technology and by technology. Who could say no to this? So let's be clear, this was sort of an accident. I didn't like my first job there. Um, I got interested in something else. Something else sort of got interested in me and all of a sudden I was learning something about signals intelligence and going back to essentially school to learn the basics of information technology. What's important is that this was taking place at the end of the 1970s when the world of information technology was about to undergo a massive seismic shift. And for those of you who take my, who are unlucky enough to take my course where I teach as an adjunct here at Georgetown, you know that that massive seismic shift occurred because digital technology was becoming cheap and usable and it was beginning to become interoperable and moving to become standards-based. The old phone system on which we relied when you dialed the phone and the, with a dialer and a bunch of electromagnetic switches back at an end office moved your call through the system was about to be replaced. People in homes didn't know it because it wasn't visible to them. And the idea of communicating through wires where the voice was simply amplified was about to be changed into a world in which the voice was sampled and those samples were sent as bits through a digital network. All this was starting to occur just a little bit at the end of the 1970s. And I was there for this. I was there because I'd made that, that decision to try to combine my interest in public service and politics with my interest in technology. And just to complete what is a very, very long-winded answer, another accident occurred. Another accident occurred because there were jobs that other people didn't want. And I was young and, and frankly, a bit full of myself. I took them. And this gave me levels of responsibility at a very young age I did not expect to have. By the time I was in my late 20s, I was one of the most senior people in my part of the business only because I was taking jobs that other people wouldn't take. And another accident, and I would say that this is an accident and it tells me that, and it, and it should tell listeners, that it's extremely important to take professional chances. Take chances on things you don't know. Take chances on things you can't foresee. In the middle of the 1980s, the world of technology changed and it didn't change because of technology. It changed because of a bunch of lawyers in a courtroom. And these lawyers in a courtroom, in essence, decided that the old monopoly of the telephone system in the United States of, under AT&T AT was no longer viable legally. They broke up AT&T. This created competition. The competition, in turn, opened the doors to lots of innovative new technologies and services, which were ready and standing there at the door, knocking on the door like fiber optics, but couldn't get in. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a field that was exploding because first in the United States and then around the world, competition and the introduction of new, tech, of new services, new technologies, created the beginnings of cyberspace. And so by taking a chance on betting on technology in the late 70s, I was standing there as the world of information technology changed first in the late 70s and then because of the technology itself, and then in the mid 80s because the lawyers and the judges said, it's time for this change to occur, and I was in an excellent position to, to take advantage of it. And that's the kind of long-winded answer that says how a person who took a degree in international politics became interested in the world of information technology and cyberspace. So kind of 
building off of your interest in public service and technology, um, as someone who has conducted years of research and work in cybersecurity, how do you persuade policymakers to pay attention to what you're doing and eventually adopt research-backed policy recommendations? Well, Aida, that's a hard question. Um, and in answering that question, I want to uh, answer a question that I know you were about to ask as well. And that is, what gives you the impulse to, to do this? Forgetting about how to do it, first the question is, what's the impulse? And I guess the impulse is that you get a few chances in your life to be part of something that's bigger than yourself. Hopefully when you're young, you get that first chance and maybe along the way you get other chances. It turns out that at this point in my life, when I'm in my, my 60s, frankly, I look back on the things that have been most rewarding and most worthwhile. And in every case, it's been where I was able to put my own interests or my own ego aside and say there is something bigger than myself. In this case, the welfare of my country, or in cases where I worked on UN peacekeeping, on, on, on those people who would benefit from successful peacekeeping operations. So in part, to, to sneak up on your answer, Aida, to some extent, the first thing is people have to know you are sincere. They have to know that when you make these recommendations, you're making these recommendations, not because you have an ulterior motive, but because you have both a, a motivation that is straightforward and honest, and that you have done the hard work to demonstrate that your recommendations are well thought through, that they are not just opinions, that they are in fact more than opinions, maybe more even than hypotheses, that they're based on good empirical work. This doesn't mean that people will believe it. Sometimes doing hard things, even if they're necessary in our minds, become very, very difficult because they are inconvenient to do, or they're politically costly to do, or they're simply costly to do. And it turns out we have 10 things that must be done and only enough money to do three of them. So some things don't get done or don't get done as well as we want, or they don't get done as quickly as they want. So there are ways to approach this. The first is to determine whether or not what one is talking about, in this case cybersecurity, is truly important or it's simply my interest in my, my, professional, uh, my professional interest or even my hobby. I'm convinced that it is important to our nation, it's strategically important to our position in the world, and getting it right is strategically important to the protection of our institutions. And I don't think that could be any clearer than it is right now, that the protection of our institutions are, is in fact in jeopardy and we need to work very hard to, to support them. But the second thing is that one needs to be flexible. It may be possible to do what we want, but not as quickly as we want. So developing intelligent options that say, well, to get, the end, to get to where we need to in 12 months, this is what it would take. But to do it in 18 months, there's a way to do that too. And maybe we're gonna do this in three to five years, which is not as much as we want, as fast as we want, but it will get us there. And part of the reason for doing that is that the situation may change and the solution that we impose on ourselves in the next 12 months might not be a good solution 12, 24 or 36 months down the road. So a certain amount of flexibility and understanding that the field is dynamic is important. In my class, we're talking a great deal about election security. Let me tell you that 36 months ago, that was not really an issue. Only in the last couple of years has the Department of Homeland Security covered election systems as a subset of the nation's critical infrastructure under government facilities. 
When I started teaching this class, that just wasn't a question that we talked about. It wasn't an issue. So the strategy that we had then might not have been sufficient for the, for, for the need that we have today and what we're going to need in the future. Consensus building is useful and getting a group of professionals and peers to review and think hard about what your opinions are. That means opening yourself up to criticism. If they are honest peers, these are people who will try hard to improve your plan as opposed to undermine it for their own purposes. And you'll be able to tell pretty quickly who those people are and you'll avoid them. But getting honest input from good peers is also a way of building, of building credibility. Building a plan that has good resource implications, that gives people some, some options at which they can look, that's also very useful. And finding the various stakeholders who are involved. I'm doing work right now on election security. Election security has incredibly complicated stakeholders. Every secretary of state, every state election director, they're involved. There are associations at the national level, the National Association of Secretaries of State. There is a National Association of State CIOs. There are groups in Washington. There's an election information sharing and advisory committee. And getting some buy-in or at least recognition from stakeholders in the community is also important. It takes longer, but it may improve one's chances of, of, of success. And lastly, and this is not always tangible, but I think it's important. There are those people who think that some problems are political, that some problems are economic, some problems are, 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 are technological. Today, all problems are political. All problems are economic. All problems are technological. And one of the things that I, I would recommend people do is learn to think uh, more, I don't want to use the term holistically, but let me say in a more comprehensive and multidisciplinary sense. Everything you do will involve political stakeholders. Everything you do costs money that could be spent on some other priority. And taking all that into account while more complicated is also the more correct answer. So you've transitioned out of government uh, and are doing research uh, at a nonprofit as the director of the National Cybersecurity Federal Funded uh, Research and Development Center. So how does that research differ from any of the work you may have done inside government? And what other things can you tell us about the work you do? That's a great question. Um, so. Um, it's never been entirely possible for me to quit the government, it turns out. So even now, uh, when I'm working for a nonprofit, that nonprofit is sponsored by a government agency, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. And in addition, I'm on a couple of government advisory boards because I am. Because <laughs> one is the Intelligence Community Studies Board and one is the Army Science Board, uh, which means that I'm still sort of a quasi-government employee from time to time. But the job I'm doing now is, is interesting and it represents a strong and, and, and really powerful uh, political uh, career turn for me. Um, I've spent the bulk of my career, though not all of it, in, in, in work in the federal government focused on national security. I was chief of signals intelligence programs at the National Security Agency on 9-11. That was quite a time, quite a story. Um, you know, more about that at some point. Um, and although I've also managed some commercial cybersecurity businesses, my focus has been on, on pushing the advance of fundamental technology to improve intelligence, 
signals intelligence, intelligence analysis, and eventually cybersecurity. But most people are not in a position to take advantage of fundamentally new cybersecurity technology. Think of a mid-sized bank or a rural electric power company that's trying to keep their grid secure. If they need cybersecurity, they can't say, well, I'm going to buy a bunch of cybersecurity products, and among the products I'm going to buy is a product that's going to cost X hundred millions of dollars. Um, it's going to come from a classified government agency, and it's going to require a, a workforce of people with, with top secret and, and above security clearances to operate this, and it's going to cost so much money that I won't even be able to keep the rest of my business running, but that's my solution. Well, that's not a solution. That's not a solution at all. In fact, while cybersecurity is important to a bank and is important to a hospital company, to a hospital and important to a hotel chain and it's important to a power company, there are a few other things that are important. Admitting patients and making them well, that's really important. Keeping the power on, that's important. Uh, paying your employees turns out to be fairly important. Paying your suppliers, uh, pretty important. If you're a manufacturing company, actually running the machines that build whatever it is you manufacture. Turns out that's important too. And the resources that one would put and devote to cybersecurity have to compete with the resources for all these other things. The nation's business infrastructure is at risk. It can be held hostage to ransomware. Its intellectual property can be stolen. It can be vandalized. It can be shut down. In other words, America's economy and our economic security and our national security are at risk if our nation's business infrastructure is not secure and our nation's critical infrastructure is not secure. 80% of the nation's critical infrastructure is run by the private sector, investor-owned utilities or rural power cooperatives, right? Or transportation companies. So who's going to provide cybersecurity for them? These are organizations that need cybersecurity that's practical, that is affordable, and that's available. So to go after this problem, working with NIST, here's what we do. We take available cybersecurity products, products that are already available, but innovative, that represent the best of breed, the best technology available and put them together in architectures that can support various industry verticals like financial services or healthcare and hospitals, devices connected to human beings on the one hand and connected to a hospital's information technology on the other, or hotel chains or companies that, that, do, um, that do retail or companies in, that work in transportation. And we build combinations of these products called reference architectures that are examples of doing it right. Just as 100 years ago, the NIST and before the National Bureau of Standards might have built, this is what might have given an developed an architecture. Here's how to build a blast furnace to produce steel of the following standard. And you don't have to do it this way, but here's a reference design. You can anchor yourself to this design. You can vary from it, but it uses innovative technologies and it allows you to meet standards. What we do is we take technologies that are innovative, put them together in architectures that help organizations meet the standards that are important to them in their industry. If it's healthcare, maybe it's HIPAA. If it's energy production, it might be uh, NERC-SIP, the North American Electric Liability Council Critical Infrastructure Protection Standards. So the job here 
is to go not is not to do research. We call ourselves a research and development center, but we're more a development engineering and architecture center. We are not we're, we're not trying necessarily to do research on new technology. We are trying to encourage the development of that technology by the private sector, get them to take that technology to market, and then make that technology available to the nation's business infrastructure and critical infrastructure. This is very different for me because it means that I have to work in an environment that is cost sensitive. You know, if you are working in, in, in the federal government and somebody says, we need to do security for the nation's nuclear command and control system, right? We don't want anyone to interfere with our ability to use those weapons, and we don't want anybody to be able to use those weapons on their own, right? We don't want another country seizing control, and we don't want them to deny our, us our ability to control them. How much would you spend on that? What's the answer? Whatever it takes, right? It's not very cost-sensitive. Now, there are some limits, but practically, you know, it's not a very cost-sensitive environment. This forces me to confront the fact that every time there is a threat and every time we see a technical solution, that technical solution has to exist within an envelope of the politics inside the organization and its economic ability to afford it. That's an interesting problem. And it's one that I'm glad that I've, I've decided to face at this point in my life. I've run, I've been a senior government executive and then I've run some cybersecurity businesses, including a global managed security service business, but I've never done anything quite like this, which takes my understanding of the private sector and then applies it to the public interest in this way. Absolutely, and you mentioned among standards and uh, internal politics of different organizations, uh, the different competing demands, but when you're talking about cybersecurity and data assurance, Sometimes you don't necessarily know if what you've built is working until it goes wrong. How does that influence your decision-making and your way of looking at problems? That's also an excellent question. And sometimes we, we, we rephrase this question more formally is, how much is a pound of cybersecurity worth? And oh, by the way, uh, how much should I pay for a pound of cybersecurity and what do I get for it? It turns out it's a pretty hard problem. Um, there are some a couple of ways in which one can look at it. One is to look at the trend line in an industry and see if the application of cybersecurity correlates. Remember, correlation is not causality. Of course, at Georgetown, I don't have to tell you that. Everybody knows that. Everyone at Georgetown is smart, right? They know that correlation is not causality, and they know that the plural of anecdote doesn't equal data. But um, one can look for a correlation in trend line with a correlation with with uh, the application of cybersecurity solutions. And that's one of the things that's, that's being done. The other thing that I think one can do to sort of sneak up on an answer is to ask what happens in the absence of good cybersecurity solutions. One of the projects on which we're working is a project called Data Integrity, which sounds about as exciting as going down to the bus depot and watching the paint peel, right? <laughs> but let me, let me try to change it. Let me try to give it to you in a somewhat sexier context. Data integrity is shorthand for protecting yourself from an organization or an adversary that would interfere with your data or hold it ransom. So there are now solutions, architectures, and products that can protect an organization from having its data encrypted and having its data held hostage so that one has to pay 
cryptocurrency to get that data unlocked. How big a problem is it? Baltimore was hit by this, the city. Atlanta was hit by this and it caused the court system to go back to pencil and paper. And it also caused the Department of Motor Vehicle to go back to pencil and paper, which is as good a definition of hell, <laughs> I think, as one is likely to hear. Um, I, I think even the even pitchforks and sulfur wouldn't be worse than a DMV back to pencil, pencil and paper. How about a few weeks ago that a hospital chain in Alabama was hit and the IT system so badly impaired that patients could not be admitted? So this is a significant problem. And the question is, what would happen if these kinds of architectures were in place? Well, I think there could be a work done to do a correlation on the adoption of good data integrity architectures and the absence of, of, uh, of ransomware. So these are the kinds of things that can be done. It turns out it's a hard problem. Uh, companies are trying to, to sell cyber insurance. How does one monetize cyber risk and what does one do in terms of monetizing it, right? You know, what is lost? What's it worth? How likely is, it, is, is that to happen? And therefore, you know, what are the, what are the, uh, um, what is the, what is the math? What are the, uh, the various factors that are necessary to uh, charge for cyber insurance? It turns out that cybersecurity is a new enough field and the dependence on cyber technology has risen so much so quickly in the last few years that we don't have good data as to how much to spend and how much it's worth. And so we're making some educated guesses. I think our guesses are getting better. But real research on the value of cybersecurity, that's actually work that still needs to be done. Okay, this is not gonna be a small question, but as someone who has advised both military and civilian agencies on cyber policy, um, have you found any differences in responsiveness or like the ability to respond to your advice? Has there been any, been any pushback? And if there has been, what strategies do you use? It's a huge question <laughs> and it's a problem. It's a very difficult question. Um, I'm not gonna speak just for myself. I'm gonna speak for those people who believe that cybersecurity is important. And yes, there, there, there is a difference, and that difference is uh, significant, and it can be very troublesome. The answer to this question, by the way, is not a question that, is, that I regard as particularly good. It means that we're struggling with the answer, right? And I want to be clear that that's where I'm going with this answer. You ask a big question, you're going to get a big answer. So it depends on who you're dealing with. If you're dealing with organizations that focus on national security, that understand what a cyber breach or cyber exploit or attack can do, that maybe are organizations which are intelligence agencies that, that more than understand this, um, then it's not that difficult to persuade them that this is important. It turns out there can still be breaches, there can still be lapses, right? But, you know, look, look, at, look at what happened with, with uh, you know, look at what happened with a guy like Snowden. But overall, those organizations that deal with national security think about all the various threats to national security that exist and think about the threats to their systems. So the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps are very sensitive to the need to be able to exercise good command and control. They want to protect their communications and their information technology because without it, they can't fight. Without information technology, they can't fight. We don't have an advantage in number, right? 
you know, China's a bigger country, other countries are, are peer competitors. We have to be smarter. Our information technology is our edge. So for them, it's more straightforward. The rest of the civilian government is harder. And it's not harder because people are stubborn. It's harder because it's sometimes difficult to make tangible the problem. If you take a look at the Office of Personnel Management, which had an egregious breach, which lost a lot of data, including data of, of government employees with, you know, who've served for years or people who've had security clearances, you know, it is a problem, but the bottom line is OPM continued to function, right? It's supposed to administer the personnel system, make sure people get paid, make sure that retirees get paid, make sure that the promotion system works when jobs are, when, when the agencies have to, government departments and agencies have to recruit, those positions are posted on USA Jobs. And the fact of the matter is that none of that stopped. And to explain to people that losing that data was bad results in a head nod, yes, it's bad. And you say, but, and, you, and then they'll say, but what bad thing happened as a result? And it can be difficult to it can be difficult to make that to make that case. I was recently in Germany and I had a conversation with a German engineer who made who said something that was was echoed a few weeks later by a German mayor on national public radio. And he said it very succinctly. And he, it's it's it was painful to hear it. But Nonetheless, it's something we should hear. We were talking about whether or not Huawei, the Chinese company that builds uh, broadband equipment, including 5G equipment, next generation internet, next generation wireless, should be allowed to provide the equipment to sell to provide the equipment that'll form the backbone of Germany's next generation broadband wireless systems. There are those who think that doing so would be a mistake. What he told me and what I heard from this mayor on the radio later was quite interesting. We understand the possibility that a Chinese company could build out a network that could be manipulated and data could be stolen and our, our security could be undermined. But Germany needs a more modern IT infrastructure. Germany is a manufacturing-oriented economy. Germany re relies on research, development, and the, and, and the development of, of new products and their export. And if we don't have this network, we are not competitive. And the fastest, cheapest way of doing it is to buy this equipment. And yes, our data could end up in China. And yes, I know that's a bad thing, but I don't know exactly why it's a bad thing. I know instinctively it's a bad thing, but I know if people lose their jobs, that's a tangible bad thing. To have the data about employees end up in China is an intangible bad thing, and I'm not sure how bad that is. That kind of conversation means that we have to make more tangible the problem. And then lastly, I will tell you that in the private sector, there was until recently, frankly, a, a point of view, not held by everybody, but by held by some that A, in the private sector, the data wasn't as important, and B, the threat to it therefore was not as great, and C, spending money on cybersecurity only added to expense and made companies less competitive, which meant D, we are not gonna do, put that much emphasis on it. And there are still companies, I suspect, that act that way. Now, the losses to companies and the data associated with those losses has begun to become more tangible, and companies are becoming far more sensitive. They also have to be sensitive to the fact that standards are emerging in some industries. And lastly, even if a standard doesn't exist, 
if you lose someone's data, if you lose, say, the data as a hotel company did of, of people who stayed there, millions of, of, of customers, the fact that you lost that data may leave you liable to civil, uh, to civil punishment, to a civil suit. And if, in fact, a, a standard didn't exist, but you did not do your best job, you did not exercise due care, you can find yourself on the other end of a lawsuit or even on the other end of a criminal prosecution. So this recognition is beginning to rise. Think of what it took to reduce the use of cigarettes. It took unceasing and consistent education so that we didn't just tell the story, but we changed people's behavioral preferences. And that it is what it's going to take here. All right, so the last segment of this interview is something we like to call the lightning round. Um, which is basically, we're going to ask you some really difficult questions and you've got to give a fast answer to them. So the first one, the leaves are changing here on the hilltop and it's now the holiday season. What's your go-to holiday movie? My go-to holiday movie? Mm -hmm. Well, it's got to be Godzilla, King of the Monsters. <laughs> I mean, Excellent all, choice. <laughs> yep. I mean, after all, growing up, what was better than uh, Saturday night, old black and white TV with your older brother, cold pizza, and a Godzilla movie with a guy in a rubber suit? So that's got to be my go-to go thing. Now, my wife, of course, wants to see the Downton Abbey movie. And I have said, as a good husband, that I would consent to do so, and I would not complain. So no Godzilla? No. It's got <laughs> to be the big guy. Yeah. <laughs> So do you have a favorite food spot in Georgetown? A favorite food spot in Georgetown? I used to like the Vietnamese place on M Street, but I think it's gone now. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think Clyde's remains reliable, but I have to say my very favorite place in Georgetown, and this is by no means an exotic choice, is absolutely Martin's Tavern. Not the least of which, many years ago, my wife and I had the oyster stew, and she had some oysters, and she got a pearl. Not a very valuable one, but it's still a really sweet memory. So, you know, it's got to be Martin's. Love that. Okay, final question. Um, in one phrase, what's the number one reason to take your class? The number one reason to take my class is the range of topics and expertise and speakers um, that, that are available. I would be surprised if any class at Georgetown has the range of guest speakers, the range of topics in an area that is changing so quickly and is so dynamic as STIA 391. <laughs> Mr. Fisner, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. Um, all I can say is Hoya Saxa. Hoya Saxa. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. If you liked what you heard today and you want to be part of our team, we're hiring. We have an application out that's due next Sunday at 11.59 p.m., so November 24th. If you're interested in applying, please check out the link bit.ly slash apply FOTW 2019. Stay connected with us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Fly on the Wall Pod, and you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.